Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the last book in the scriptures, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1 will be where we begin our reading, but the end of the chapter 2 is where the text of our sermon lies this morning. And so we invite you to join with us in, in the Word of God as we hear the words of Christ, the words of the Spirit, to the churches and to our church this morning. The title of the message today is Christ the greatest giver ever. Christ, the greatest giver ever. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His, his feet were burnished with bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Please turn to 2, verse 18. And to the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus says the word of God. Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning, as we dare to look upon these holy words, may the Spirit bring them right into where they need to go, in every place of our heart that needs to hear the word of truth. Father, plant that word deep in our hearts and water it and bring nourishment to it and let it spring forth into life everlasting in all of our hearts make life where there's death in our hearts bring holiness where there is sin bring faith where there's unbelief father do all of this and more in the wise counsel in the wise ways of the spirit so father we give ourselves to you and to the hearing of your word May we be blessed not only in the speaking and the hearing, but as Jesus said, let us be blessed also in the keeping of the word. In his mighty name we pray, amen. So here we are in this fourth of the churches in the the letters of the seven churches. And this church, 
Thyatira exists in the, in the city of Thyatira, which is a nominal town. It's kind of a run-through town. Pergamus, as you remember, we had learned, was a very major city. As a matter of fact, for, as a matter of fact it was the, um, the capital city of Asia Minor. It was a significant ancient city, significant in size, significant in poise, significant in importance to the Roman Empire. It was the gateway to Asia from the West. Thyatira was kind of like this little outskirts suburb of Pergamus. Something that you may or may not have heard of this city if you lived in that area. Think of small town Ohio with no name. Archaeologists and historians don't know much about Thyatira because it was a pass-through town. It was, a, it was an outside garrison to Pergamus. That is, soldiers would garrison and would stay there to defend Pergamus. But so often through the changes of cultures and changes of empires, the soldiers would just get run over, so to speak, like, like a lawnmower on the way to Pergamus. And so through the centuries, Thyatira, as archaeologists have dug it up, they found that there's just so many layers of cultures there and so, many, so much interplay between the different empires that it's hard to tell what exactly was going on in Thyatira because it switched hands so many times. So we don't know a lot about what Thyatira was like in this first century. Not an awful lot is, is told because of just the mingling of all of the artifacts and, and all of that. It just doesn't exist, and it's just a small town of insignificance. And likely in this small town is probably a small church. Probably a small church in relationship to other churches, Antioch, maybe Ephesus and Colossae and some others. But here in Thyatira, is probably just a small band of believers. But listen to this. As we have read this first chapter in Revelation, Jesus loves the small church. He loves them so much that he, that he writes one of the letters to this small band of believers uh, there in Thyatira, in this insignificant, no-name-on-the-map type of town. Jesus loves his people, no matter where they are. And there is no insignificant church in the church of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus actually writes the most words to this church. Did you notice that in verses 18 to 29 actually is the largest of conversations of Jesus with the church than all the seven churches? It's significant, and it's central, by the way. It's central in this way, and sometimes we learn things by looking at how things are set up. It's central, and we, could we say it's concentric? That is, in the ancient way of thinking, when you're to put something really important in some sort of address, you put it right in the middle. You're sort of making big circles and coming into the smallest circle, concentric circles, so that the most important part of the information that you have is going to be right in the middle of your conversation. It's sort of the peak. You, you go up to the climax in the middle of the conversation, then you come back down. And Thyatira lands right in the middle of these seven churches as that one. Like, if we're to know anything about Jesus' heart for the churches, it seems to be boiled down to, or we might say building up to, Thyatira. To this church of Thyatira. So while insignificant, at least in size, not insignificant in Jesus' plan, 
to change the world, and specifically to change its community. Not insignificant at all. As a matter of fact, it holds the greatest amount of attention, at least by number of words and length of time and conversation, it holds the greatest amount of attention um, of Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes to this church, and he gives them a commendation. He gives them a commendation. He, he says, I know your works. You have, you have demonstrated great faith. You have endured patiently what's going on in Thyatira. And we're going to learn about what's going on. And he says, you have given yourself to serving me. You have shown love. You have shown love for one another. You are really good at loving one another. And by the way, this is what is so wonderful about small churches. They're not designed to be small. They're not trying to be small. But often, not always, but often small churches are able to engender more easily than larger churches a a close-knit love. We certainly, I feel, experience that at Providence. But this church was not only dynamic in its love and growing in its love for one another, but it also was really good at loving its community. So it wasn't merely an inward love, you know, a love for one another and the bonds of Christ, but it was spilling out and it was affecting its town. It was able to transmit, it was finding ways to and avenues and paths to show the love of Christ in meaningful ways in its pagan community. Jesus says, you began starting off on the right foot. You were loving each other and loving your community. And since day one, I have seen you just take off. I have seen you grow and mature in your love so that your works now of love, inwardly and outwardly, just leave everything in the dust of where you had started. And sometimes when a church starts, I think when a church starts, there's great dynamics, great excitement, a great energy. And Jesus says, you're outdoing yourself from day one. You're taking off on this. You are showing yourself faithful. You're showing yourself as a perseverer. And your deeds of late are greater in number and they're greater in effectiveness and impact than ever before. They weren't like the church of Ephesus. You know that first church we looked at at the beginning of chapter two? You see, church of Ephesus was making sure every doctrine was right and clean and sterile and preserved and holding fast the word of faith, but had like zero love for one another and zero love for their neighbor. Oh, they believed the right things, but, but they were just cold towards towards God and towards one another. They weren't like that great church of Ephesus. Ephesus was so strong on the truth, but it was weak in love. But Thyatira was very strong on love. But what it was happening in verse number 24 and 25 in this commendation is that there were some leaders that were falling into error. But Jesus commends and says, there are some among you, so some even in this little church, Some were not pursuing righteousness and holiness and truth, but some were, even in this small church. Some were not pursuing Jesus Christ, and some were. 
And Jesus is commending the ones who feel very small in number. They're showing up at small gatherings, praying earnestly, sharing the word of grace with one another. They're a very small group in a very small church. And he's, he's pointing out, and I don't know, let me just give a number, a dozen of them. I don't know, a very small number in a very small church. And he's saying, I see you, and you are doing well. You are bringing me pleasure. And so this is a loving church. And listen, we, we don't need to be scared about being a loving church. We don't have to be scared about being a, a loving church. We don't have to be scared about where love is going to take us as a church, as we approach our community, as we approach our friends, our neighbors. We don't have to be scared about love, where love will take us. I think sometimes we get a little scared about the risk, the threat, and maybe even wondering, are we going to stay anchored in truth if we reach out in love? We wonder, can we balance love and truth? The fact is that we will struggle with that all of our life. But we can't wait until we have it perfect to do either one of them, to live in truth and to love. We'll never have it perfect. We just have to move forward, holding on to truth, preaching Christ to ourselves daily, dwelling in truth, reminding ourselves, meditating on truth, letting truth seep into our hearts and minds, and loving at the same time. We can recognize that we have room to grow in both of those ways. That's what it is to be a follower of Christ, is to grow and to mature. There was praise, but then there was peril. And so Jesus had some concerns. He had commendation, but he also had some concerns. The problem in Thyatira was not that they were, from what we can tell, being persecuted. We had seen previous churches, and specifically Antipas and, and Polycarp. You know, they had been martyred, killed. But in Thyatira, no such persecution is, seems to be outlined by Jesus Christ. It does not seem that the threat upon this congregation was from outside. The greater threat appears to be from coming from within. And it was coming from a compromise, from severe compromise in their church. And that compromise also can be seen as the word tolerance. They had the wrong kind of tolerance. Now, we, we know what tolerance is. As people, human beings, we generally try to be tolerant towards some things. As a society, we try to be tolerant towards some things. We, as Christians, would want to advocate for plurality of religions in America. We are, are willing to be tolerant of, of abiding alongside of other religions. We want there to be a tolerance level for religious freedom in our country, so long as it doesn't cross over into what is disastrous, demonstrably disastrous for society, like jihad or something like that. But we, we want to be tolerant. In fact, tolerance keeps us all alive with one another at the grocery store and on the highway and at red lights and wherever. Tolerance. We're demonstrating tolerance in so many ways all of the time. So there is 
there is a place for tolerance. It's not a, a bad word in itself. Sometimes tolerance is good and healthy. Sometimes tolerance is bad. But what was happening here is that they were tolerating either a woman who Jesus typifies, caricaturizes as a woman named Jezebel, as a recall from the book of Second Kings, or maybe if it's even a group of women in the church. But this uh, toleration of this teacher, this prophetess Jezebel, violated, first of all, or at least among the first principles, the fact that Paul had given the church instruction in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, where he said, I do not permit a woman to teach among the brethren. I do not permit a woman to teach in the church to have authority over a man, but to be silent. And the Apostle Paul made that case. And here we see that Jezebel has has risen to be some sort of a promoter of some sort of teaching in the church. But also the content of what she was sharing was incredible error. There was two things that she was teaching that are called the deep things of Satan by Jesus. Number one, she was teaching sexual immorality as being normal and good. And then secondly, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So when we talk about tolerance, there's, we have to recognize then there's another level to the conversation. There's tolerance that we can have with our world around us. Tolerance that we can have as a society, as a community. Tolerance with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, the world. But there's a far different tolerance that Jesus calls his community, his covenant community to the church. And what was taking place in Thyatira, this church, is that what they were becoming, what they were tolerant of in society, they were also becoming tolerant of in their community, in their church community. What was happening in the world, among pagans and unbelievers, they were allowing and actually perpetuating and preaching in the church. And so they were tolerant in the wrong place. They were tolerant in the right place in the community, putting up with what was going on in the community, but preaching Christ, but they were not, uh, but they were tolerant in the wrong place in the church. They were admirably tolerant of different views in town. They were participating in their culture. They were doing acts of love in the city. They were getting along with the city, so to speak. But their wide, indiscriminate love that they were demonstrating out to the world led them to become an indiscriminate church. It actually was, if we can say, a good problem to have. It was a good problem to have in the sense that they knew what love was. And they needed to come back and be grounded in truth. Very often, it's very difficult to move someone who's, who's holding fast to truth to move them towards outward love. John writes a book about this in his first letter in 1 John. He says, truth and love is manifested out of truth. It is the fruit of truth. 
So if you really know truth, if you really live in truth, if you've been transformed by truth, you will love. But if you say you have the truth and do not love, John says, there's no way you could call yourself a Christian. And so Jezebel is who Jesus identifies as false teaching, this leader, and just to remind you of an Old Testament lesson, but she, she married a, a, a king of Israel. As a matter of fact, he married her. He went out and he was tolerant towards a people uh, called the Sidonians, and he married the, the king's daughter. He married the princess, the Sidonian princess, Jezebel, who was a, a, a wicked woman already from a wicked line and a pagan, heathen, idol-worshipping woman. Ahab already was an evil man, and his heart was turned even more towards wickedness by his marriage with this Gentile woman. And Jezebel has always been known as a a sort of proverbial name for wickedness. None of us have children. None of us have daughters that we name Jezebel. I don't know I've ever come across anybody named Jezebel because it's proverbial for wickedness. It's the epitome of wickedness. Jezebel in the Bible is one of the most wicked people that we come across as we begin to read in the scriptures. And what happened with Jezebel is she she incited, she incited Ahab. She ignited in his heart, motivated him to declare war against God's righteous prophets. Prophets like Elijah. And actually, many prophets were slain underneath the, the, the monarchy. I like to call it the monarchy of Jezebel, even though Ahab was the king. Because of her, Nahab would lose his vineyard and his life because she wanted his land. But in the end, Jezebel met a, a dramatic ending where God avenged the blood of his, of his messengers. God avenged the blood of his prophets. And, and Jezebel eventually was thrown out of a window and trampled on the street like she was nothing. And 2 Kings 9 records that, that such was her shame and such was the degradation and dishonor given to her body in the streets that as she laid there, as her body laid there, dogs would come. And lick her remains. Now we know that women are to be listened to. Women are to be listened to. For example, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is called Lady Wisdom. She, the pronoun she, and lady wisdom is used often in Proverbs to remind us of this characterization that wisdom is personified in in a woman. And throughout the scripture, we see that the wisdom that God has given women and the way that he intends for them to use their influence. We see wonderful things. We hear from the mouth of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Wonderful wisdom. And Anna, the the prophetess in, in the temple, to name a few. But we also see the wrong ways in which women influence Jezebel, for example, but also Sarah and Abraham. Sarah is saying, here, take, take Hagar. 
And so Jezebel incites her husband to wickedness. And, and what is she doing in verse number 20? She's teaching some in the church to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We actually see the same pair of temptations and pressure and inward sin actually in the church being put up with and actually promoted in the previous church that we looked at. In verse number 14, Pergamus. Pergamus is Nicolaitans, remember? And their problem is that they are, they are incorporating idol worship and eating of the, the, the feasts that were given to idols and, and also participating in sexual immorality. This is a, a problem now, and now it's sort of taken apart here in verse number, in verse number 20 here in, in this passage, and it's, it's taken apart by Jesus. And remember I said that central circle, he's explaining a lot more of what was some of the common problems of the other churches here. What was happening in the church here was characteristic of the society that they were living in. There was a temptation for the church to give in to social pressure and the unbelieving world around them. What was going on outside of the church, not the church walls, but outside of this covenant community, was also being invited in. Remember this tolerance issue. And every generation in the church faces the question of what they will do to embrace the culture and what they will do to reject the culture. No doubt if, uh, some of you have lived here in this world for many decades, and you have made, had to make decisions over a period of time of what parts of culture you're going to enjoy, even as music changes and as dress changes and as culture changes and what part of culture are you going to interact with and and enjoy and participate in then also what part of culture will you principally and morally not embrace that is coming down the pike and every generation of the church does face different cultural changes and has to make discerning choices about what parts of culture are they free to engage in and what parts of culture are they not, even as culture changes over generations' time. And in some ways, it seems, at least from my finite perspective, that the longer this world continues on, the more complex that question becomes, doesn't it? The more nuanced it becomes. What maybe may have seemed so black and white in time past now seems so blurry, and it isn't because of the, uh, the believer, the word-filled believer's lack of discernment, but because of all of the different tangents of how culture is going and the mixed bag of what some things now are bringing to us that isn't all bad, but yet doesn't seem at all redeemable either, and so it's it's getting more complex. And this is why, by the way, we need each other. This is why the church needs itself. This is why, believer, child of God, we need the church. You need your brothers and sisters in the church. You need the hearing and the faithful teaching of the Word of God in the church because you don't need to feel that pressure 
and that loneliness to try to figure things out yourself. We're all living in this culture and trying to find and trying to be faithful to follow Jesus Christ in a in a pure way, in a holy way. We're working on this together. And so we're coming underneath the word of God as expressed in our mutual encouragement with one another, in our prayerfulness with one another, in, in our teaching of, to one another. We are given the church to work through what it is to live in our culture. The temptation essentially in our church, may not be the same as it was for Thyatira. The tolerance of immorality amongst us or, or the eating of the meat to idols, I doubt any of you stumbled over that this week. But what is unique to our generation is multifaceted. We're dealing in today with political pressures and trying to understand as Christians, well, we're not that way And we're also not that way. But those two sides are trying to say, at least politically, you don't have the luxury of standing on the sidelines. You don't have the luxury of being in the middle. And brother, sister, and Lord, we can work through this in the truth of the word of God and recognize we're on the Lord's side. We don't have to let the world tell us who we are. And then we have economic pressures. And this, by the way, is where eating the meat to the idols came in for Thyatira. Thyatira, while being a small town, had formed guilds, tradesmen guilds. And so you were, uh, um, you worked with leather or you worked with a blacksmith with iron and metals and you worked with uh, agriculture. And so there were these these little clubs, these little guilds of tradesmen. And so if you worked in that town and maybe the area, you would have these meetings together and you would all work with each other and trade, trade ideas and, and help one another, you know, network. It was, it was kind of like that give and take exchange of what happens in sort of like clubs. But if you lived in Thyatira and you worked, you were part of a guild. And if you were in the church in Thyatira, you were probably part of those guilds. And at those guilds, so influential was the pagan thinking and pagan worship where these feasts, where they would take sacrifices to the idols and then bring the sacrifice into their guild meeting and enjoy it to the praise of their God, the God of their guild. So now, as a Thyatiran Christian, you're trying to figure out what to do. Should I eat the meat? In Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, the apostle Paul and Peter, some of those all met together and they, they worked through what it is for a Gentile, a person of is, not of Israel, but now born again as a Christian, what it is for them to live for Jesus Christ. Would they be underneath the law or was there exceptions And one of the things that they came down to concluding is, number one, Gentiles are called unto holiness like the Jews, and that is refrain from sexual immorality. And so right off the bat, Gentiles are commanded, and so Thyatiran Christians 
we're, we're commanded by Christ and the apostles' teaching to, to put off, to exclude that type of living from their fellowship, to not put up with it in their church or in their lives. And the second thing was also to be a part of any of the pagan worship, even though they're Gentiles. And because this was associated, this was a worshipful moment among the guilds, Jesus calls out these Christians in Thyatira, and he says, you're just giving approval. You're involving yourself in pagan worship because you don't want to lose your job. You're compromising. There's an economic pressure now. I don't know what it could be in your context, or as we understand, maybe it's not your context, but your friends and our world we live in. But are there economic pressures today for you, for the Christian, to have to affirm and approve something in order to keep their job? You say it's not so much unlike then, is it? To stay part of the guild, eat the meat, keep your job? What is it for us in America here today? And we're working through this as Christians and following Christ, trying to remain faithful. And so, so we have these pressures. And whether it be pressures from our jobs like this or pressures from the entertainment culture or the political climax, climate, the question we should ask ourselves is, What is it today that makes sin look normal? Doesn't sin look normal today? It looks acceptable, right? It's just received and celebrated. What is it that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange, weird? And when you find something in culture that uh, answers both those questions... That's where you know not to compromise. That's where you know that the truth of the word of God will give you a path through this. So the problem in Thyatira is what the church has in recent history called worldliness. What was so insidious in this is that someone in the church was teaching what was likely a sophisticated, multi-tiered argument for worldliness. It was slick and it sounded spiritual and it probably even had some scripture. And Jesus, with his discerning, remember he says in verse 18, I come among you and my feet are burnished and brass. That is, I am the pure and righteous judge. I can discern, I can parse right from wrong, even when it seems gray, I can discern it's black and white. And what's happening here is the teachings of Jezebel are being brought out as this is it. This is the deep things. You want to go deeper? You want to know more? You want to you whatever more? Well, come to my class or listen to this or read this book. And Jesus says, oh, it's deep things, all right. But it leads you straight to Satan. It's the deep things of Satan. And potentially, Jesus is even using the words deep things to trigger in their minds. They've heard that word before. That's on the posters 
the papyrus posters outside the Sunday school rooms of Jezebel. Come and hear deep things. And Jesus says, oh, they're deep, all right. The deep things of Satan. They probably didn't say Satan, of course. But they gave this impression of, of greater love or greater truth than what you've been taught or what you had previously experienced. The way that they came about their teaching was by the twisting of truth to the point of creating deep, unsolvable problems that would have only pragmatic solutions. Listen, they created what they would propound, what they would put forth to you as unsolvable problems unless you just do this. Deep, complicated, sophisticated arguments with a pragmatic solution, whatever works. But this isn't how the Word of God works. This is not how God, the Word of God works. So what does Jesus do? He commands them. He, he tells them they need to repent. How does Jesus respond? Look in verse 21. Look number twenty one, verse 21. I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. I want you to notice something about Jesus here. Jesus is the most patient person you will ever know. He's the most patient person you will ever know. Praise be to his name. He is patient with you. Even we aren't patient with ourselves. Even the ones who we love and love us dearly are not very patient with us. But Jesus is patient, and he was waiting. That doesn't mean he wasn't doing anything. We'll find out something here, but first of all, recognize he is waiting for Jezebel to repent. I gave her time to repent. What does the song say? What patience he waits as we so often roam. What patience he waits as so often we roam. This is perhaps why he takes us into the pasture in Psalm 23. And he guides us, comforts us with a staff. He's a patient shepherd. You see, Jesus doesn't do snap judgment decisions like you and I do a lot. But he can if he wants. He could. He has all permission, all sovereignty, all authority, and all wisdom, by the way, to make split-second judgments. But he doesn't. Jesus holds out the prospect of mercy, and that's why Jesus is patient, because he wants to hold out mercy. The severe judgments are for those who will not repent. The severe judgments are for those who refuse to repent, but Jesus wants them to have mercy first. You don't deserve this, but I'm patient with you. Take this. If you will not take this, you will be severely judged. And so patience, by the way, let's remember this. Jesus isn't a compromiser. And so patience isn't compromise. Patience isn't compromise, okay? 
But his patience isn't indefinite. That isn't, he doesn't continually have patience. There is coming a time, and here in this passage, Jesus says, there is coming a time when I'm going to deal with Jezebel if she doesn't repent, and I'm going to throw her into her bed. That she knows so well, by the way. And all of those who are with her are going to be thrown into her bed. And if, if, if that's what it's looking like every day in her life, it's going to look far different when I throw them into bed. They're going to be killed in bed. If they're going to live in bed, they're going to die in bed. This is what we would call poetic justice. And all of those who follow after her, that's all the children, all the ones who follow after her. And so Jesus says, my patience is here, but it will always be here. The punishment will fit the crime. The bed will receive, will become a sick bed. Like Haman who hung on the gallows. Or like in Psalm 715, where the psalmist says, the wicked man, he digs a pit and then he looks down in to see the great work that he had done. And then he falls down into his own pit. And so Jezebel will lay in a bed for sure. And it will become her deathbed. And so Christ will come in time and he will exact fitting justice. Fitting justice. Strategic justice. And so he tells them, hold fast. Hold fast. The Greek word is krateo. It's a strong word indicating that it would not be easy to hold fast. And so he gives them promise. He gives them a promise. He gives them counsel. And he gives them two promises here. Verse 25, he says, only hold fast what you have until I come. And so verse 26, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have, have received authority from my father. Now listen, all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. All of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. And then this book and the, book and the books of the Bible end with Jesus saying, I receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also come. It's all about Jesus Christ. But once in a while, he says, but look what you are going to be like when you're with me. While all the Bible is about Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that it's not about us too. It doesn't mean we can't find anything about us. And so here in this passage, Jesus is saying something like Psalm 2 reminds us. Psalm 2 says, the, 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 the son ascended unto the king and the king anointed him. This is Jesus and the father. And, and he who kisses the ring or kisses this son, this king, will live eternally. And those who rage against him will be crushed. Christian, you and I are included in this. Jesus says, listen, the authority, the power, the prominence of me in eternity, I will share with you. You will sit on my right hand and the things that I am up to in eternity, you will be a part of. You will sit there and at some point, I think, I think at some point, I'm willing to be wrong, 
will stop saying, I can't believe I'm here. And will actually just start obeying and serving alongside of Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to set you up like kings. That's where your story is heading. Believer, you're insignificant. You're in Thyatira. You're a small church. You're in this guild and you're feeling pressures. You're not sure if you're going to make a paycheck next week because of the decisions you're making. And in your own church, it's only a couple of you that are being faithful to the Lord. But don't be deceived by what things look like now. There is a throne with your name on it and you will sit next to King Jesus for eternity with his power. And you will not have a shepherd's staff. You will have a rod of iron. It will be so strong that nothing will stand in your way when you exact judgments. It'll be like a scepter of iron crushing a clay pot. Talk about a little bit of a power trip. You will have authority vested in you from King Jesus to rule the world, to rule the universe on a throne with your name on it. It doesn't feel like that now, but there's more than this. The second promise is even more amazing. Now, when we look at all the promises that Jesus is making here to the previous churches, to the previous churches, he had said, for example, uh, to one of the churches, he said, I'm going to give you a sign of victory, a white stone. To another church, he said, I'm going to give you the crown of life. Remember those things. And now here in the central part, remember the, the central argument here is you're going to be with me in eternity and you will have a lot to do with me. I will share in my power. And the second promise is I will share in my glory. So look in verse number 29. And I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Now, nameastar.net says this is a place where you can buy the name of a star gift package in which you can name a star in honor of someone for as low as $28.95. You can name a star. <laughs> anybody, has anybody done that? It's a good Valentine's gift or a waste of money. It says this, looking for a unique personalized gift, give a star a name for someone. Don't let this opportunity to immortalize a loved one pass you by. Buy the name a star gift package for that someone special. Now, when you buy the name of a star gift package, you're buying the perfect gift for all occasions that will be remembered with each glance at the stars. Well, in the ancient world, they knew something about the morning star. It is what we know now, because we've been able to study the universe a little bit more since then, we know it to be the planet of Venus. Venus. We know it to be Venus, and we know that Venus is closer to the sun than we are. And if you see Venus in the night sky, uh, you know that the sun is setting. You can see it around sunset. It just has an angle to the sunlight that we can see as the sun begins to dip below the horizon, and then Venus actually disappears through the night after a little while. And you can't see Venus for the rest of the night until 
The sun is about ready to rise again. And before the sun rises, you will see Venus again. And you can see Venus. And when you see Venus appear in the morning, you know that the sun is coming. When Jesus says, I want to give you the morning star, it's like he's saying in our vernacular, I love you so much, I'll give you the moon. That's what he's saying here. I love you so much, I'll give you the moon. Believer, insignificant, no-name believer. There's a throne with your name on it. And there's this great gift. And you say, what am I going to do with Venus? There's only one more time Just before the Bible closes, there's only one other time in all of the scriptures when the words morning star is used. So let's find out more about it. And in Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the moon. I am Venus. I am the morning star. Jesus says to Thyatira, I'm not giving you Venus. And I'm not giving you the moon. I love you so much that those things are too small. I'm not giving you the world. And I'm not giving you the universe. And it isn't about the rod that's in your hand or the throne that you're sitting in for all of eternity that you didn't deserve. I'm giving you the most precious Thing in all the universe giving you myself giving you myself the morning star is Christ himself which is the greatest possible thing that Jesus could promise his church that's the greatest promise that Jesus could have made to the church. And he gives that promise to you and I here today. He says, I am yours forever. You see, Jesus is the greatest gift giver ever. And yes, the blessings of the riches that are found in Jesus Christ are infinite and we are unworthy and undeserving. They're immeasurable and they're eternal. But the greatest gift that Jesus has ever given has not been apart from himself. It has been 
himself. He will give us himself. We will see Jesus face to face. We will be his and he will be ours. Do you believe this? Our final reward is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a day. Now let me speak to you here this morning if you don't know that you will see Jesus someday. Jesus is patient. And you have likely heard about him many times. And he is patient. And he is patient because he is waiting for you to turn away from your own life and follow him. But his patience has an end. He will not always be patient. And that you live without his grace this morning is by his mercy. But don't take that for granted for what is today. It's like a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Call upon Jesus to be your Savior today. Let's pray.